So I just felt compelled to go back to my office at the church and I walked over to the sanctuary and I just knelt down at the altar. And I, uh, and I asked God, I said, God, I said, what was that I was feeling? And he said, it was regret. It was all the, all the regret in that room, in that building. And it was that day that I purposed in my heart, whether it was with my children, I quit playing golf right then. I had three little boys that were one, two, and three. Uh, I quit playing golf. I quit. I quit doing a lot of things. You know, running the roads and whatever else I was doing. Uh, you know, not nothing bad, but just bad priorities. And at that point, uh, as a young man, I purpose in my life that I was going to do my best to not live with any regret. Hey guys, this is Brian. And I'm Tony. And you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. India's religion that will determine where we live eternally forever. But there is politics that will determine the here and now. I've heard this first off a podcast from a, a minister that does a prophecy channel and he gets very practical in how some of the modern events of this world determine uh, in regards to prophecy what is coming and what is going to happen. And today we're very grateful to have Pastor Donnie Copeland in North Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, sitting down with us to discuss different issues, very practical issues that are affecting American society, local and state government um, Pastor Coleman, thank you for taking the time to sit down with us. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you having me. Brother Copeland, me and you got the chance to meet about three or four years ago whenever you invited my mother-in-law to come down and do a children's service um, in the streets of North Little Rock. And we were privileged enough to stay overnight to do a children's service the next day. And uh, I was super excited to get to meet you because you're not... At that point, you were not just a pastor. You weren't just a father. You just weren't grandpa, granddad, whatever. You you had many different titles, but one of the coolest titles that you had was a politician, and you were a pastor. It was kind of difficult for me to make the connection uh, because everybody says, oh, politicians are liars, blah, blah, blah. We're here to debunk that today, Brian. We're, <laughs> right. we're, we're here to, right. to pick your brain a little bit. Like Brian said, thank you for sitting down with us. But I want you to go back... Um, Tell us kind of your journey. Where, where does it all start at? With the politics yeah. and specifically. Um, uh, and again, thank you, Tony. Thank you, Brian, for giving me this opportunity. Uh, where it started for me was a, I was actually at a prophecy conference, uh, ironically, Brian. And uh, uh, here at our church, Irvin Baxter Jr. was doing a, uh, a meeting here. And that's who I was referring to. Yeah, okay, awesome. So we come full circle. So I'm sitting there, and he... He's talking about how he feels like uh, sometimes when he reads the scripture, he sees America in prophecy. Other times, it's like America doesn't exist. And he he, he made the point, he said, I, I don't know where or what happens. And, and sitting there at that moment, a thought came to me, and I really believe it was a God thought, was, well, maybe that hadn't been determined. And maybe we determine that by our actions are by our inactions. And I think it was at that point I actually decided I'm going to become involved in some way. Uh, and that this was about 2009, 2008, something like that. 
the party that I was a part of at the time and, and still am uh, really was not even uh, prevalent in Arkansas. Uh, that was a Republican Party. And so uh, they would have uh, statewide candidates that they wouldn't even have a candidate in the race. The, the Democrats would just automatically assume that, uh, that office. And so I, I literally called the Republican Party office and said, hey, man, you know, you don't have anybody running for this office. And they were like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's just not the time and uh, whatever. And so that was kind of my start of my journey. I went to see Tim Griffin at his office. And the only reason I knew his name, I, I read, him the, read about him in the paper, made, a, uh, made an appointment, showed up and talked to him. And he kind of told me I was, you know, crazy. And uh, so I just I kept praying about it, kept thinking about it. Then eventually in 2010, uh, I decided, now you got to get this in your head, uh, it's March, I believe. Uh, the I believe that it was like two or three months before the, the the actual primary for the Republicans, and I ran for lieutenant governor. The guy that I was running against, uh, Mark Dar, who's a good friend now, uh, had been running for a year and a half. I ran three months, and I came. I went to bed that night, twenty three hundred votes up. I won sixty out of seventy five counties, and I ended up losing that race by twenty three hundred votes. Uh, statewide, and uh, I got somebody told me the other day said uh, way back when we had a presbyter vote. I don't think I got I got one vote or somebody you know probably somebody as a practical joke put my name in. It's been years ago, and they said Copeland, you got one vote for sectional presbyter, and you got sixty five thousand as in, in the state. So uh, what a for what a paradox. So that kind of started it in twenty ten. Uh, I just stayed engaged, uh, became a member of the executive committee of the Republican Party, helped a lot of other candidates uh, through that time. And then 2016, six years later, I actually ran for uh, the state house seat in, in my district. There was a sitting Democrat. It was a very, uh, very uh, liberal uh, house district. And uh, I actually, I lost that first lieutenant governor's race by two points. I won that race by two points. Uh, and one of the highlights of that was the lady, she was very sweet that I was running against. She told me, she said, you know, bless your heart, you're working hard. She said, but I just know everybody. And, and she had a lot more money than I did, and, you know, and she said, and I said, well, I appreciate that. And so anyway, at the end, I won that one by two points. And then a, two years later, I knew I wasn't gonna stay in the house long. I ran for the Senate. I lost that to a fellow Republican and I lost that one by two points. So, man, you need to get that two just, point just game right going. There. I'm telling you, man. So, I, 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 the two points is my that's my go to. So, you told us in your office beforehand that uh, a lot of people play golf, racquetball, go fishing, hunting, and all that. But politics has kind of been your passion. Why do poli- Why does politics really matter? I, I think it matters because you know Jesus said we're salt and light, and. Uh, and a lot of times, here, here's what I, I tell a lot of times. I, I hear a lot of ministers, a lot of people say, because they're afraid of it, they'll say, we don't need to be involved in politics until the highway wants to, the highway department wants to put a highway through their church. Hmm. And now they're calling every politician they know. And some of those same guys that would call me, or not call me, but I would hear through the grapevine, you don't need to be doing this, that's not place of a pastor. Those same people are calling me, want me to get a hold of somebody to see if I can help them. So, you know, 
if if I win that race, I don't have to call anybody for you. I can just do it for you. But that's I don't think that's quite a, a good enough reason. I think it goes much deeper than that. I think it's it is salt and light. And uh, look, you know, we we don't like abortion. Well, what better person to have there voting on those? Uh, issues than a Holy Ghost filled Jesus right. name. That's right. You, you have you a know. voice in the room. Absolutely. You know. So I, I think I think if we're going to be salt and light, let's let's be it. Let's be it at the highest and best levels we can. Brother Copeland, we're going to talk today on economics, morals, defense, immigration. We're going to hit kind of everything that's going on right now. But I want to before we get into all of that, I kind of want to go into what you're doing right now. Um, you've kind of stepped back from that as of right now. You're pastoring full-time here at North Little Rock. you got a lot of things going on at a very successful, thriving church. Um, right on the interstate. Right on the interstate. You can't go through North Little Rock without seeing it. Um, kind of tell us about what you got going on right now. Yeah, right now we're really focused on you know growing and building the church, and we've got a, a, lot, of, a lot of things going on uh, in the community, and uh, we're very... Uh, outside the church oriented um, and so we we work really hard at that and then at the same time uh, trying to build those people that do come in uh, on, on a regular basis and then I'm just a person that I'm going to always have some other stuff going you know it's 90% of my time is spent right here in this office but I have a consulting company where we work with uh, we, uh, people that want to print a book or, or write a book uh, something we're just now getting into is we're helping pastors who maybe don't have time to write, but if they can just send us their uh, their sermons, we'll transcribe those and, and put them into a book. You've seen uh, we're, we're helping publish a, a magazine right now. Um, and then we're also helping launch a, uh, a digital uh, platform for uh, some people wanting to start uh, a digital platform, uh, video and audio. Uh, so those are just a few of the things that we're doing right now. Uh, eventually, we're, we've started it here, but we've, we've got uh, Cafe United uh, that we've just launched here at the church. It's kind of a in-house cafe, and eventually we want to launch that all over central Arkansas and eventually the whole state where people will walk in a Starbucks, but it'll be Cafe United. It'll be a high-end cafe, but instead of barista, baristas there, that are just serving coffee. They're actually ministers in disguise. So wow, that's that's kind of one of our long term long term things we want to do. So you've brought up some things that if you would have if somebody would have asked you 25, 30 years ago, you kind of almost would have laughed in their face talking about an online digital interface and uh, you know such such as that. Um, times are changing, Pastor Copeland, oh, yeah. and um, we we have a responsibility not to be conformed with the world, but we also can't be so far behind the world that we can't relate to anybody. Uh, talk to me about the importance of keeping up with the 21st century as a 21st century church. Yeah, you know, and, and I'm going to tell you something that's really strange. There's a man that is in his probably mid or late 70s that probably formed my thinking more about this than anybody in the world, and that's Paul Mooney. Uh, I've heard Paul Mooney speak for, for years and he, th he, he talks about the culture. He talks about things that are, you know, that are cutting edge. And I think where the church has to find itself is kind of like Israel. When they would, they would walk through a, a country and they did everything that God asked them to do, 
but they still walk through that country. I love what Brother Tenney used to say, T.F. Tenney, would say, you know, God called us to be separate, uh, separated, but not to be isolated. And uh, I heard Brother Bernard say this one time, the extreme either way is easy to, to, to get over all the way to the left and say nothing's, nothing's wrong and, uh, you know, uh, just get out there and do whatever you're big enough to do. That's easy. Uh, to go to the right and say, you know, we're not going to hang around anybody that doesn't look like us and act like us, uh, that's easy. Uh, but it's living in this present world, being godly to your very core, inwardly and outwardly, and yet affecting this world and letting them feel. That's exactly what Jesus did. I, I've often said this, you know, you're talking about technology, 21st century. If Jesus were living today and there were still smoking sections, Jesus, when he walked in a restaurant, would ask for the smoking section because he was as godly and pure as anybody in the world but he was known as the friend of the sinner. Amen. So I think that uh, Brother Mooney, he's one of the most important voices we can hear in today's society. Uh, I think that he has such a unique perspective that he really looks at, at culture, where things are going, and brings people's attention to, to various different things that are out there. And then uh, when it comes to talking about with Brother Tenney, when you, you make reference of uh, that we, we are called to be separate but not isolated, I've heard someone say before that Thanksgiving, once you take the two wings off the turkey, whatever that is in the middle, that's that's pretty good eating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so uh, this is, it, it may not be a good segue uh, into politics, but of course, early on in, in America, I think there was a, a debate whether or not to use the eagle or the turkey as the symbol, <laughs> uh, the national bird of America. But when we look at America today, we hear this big word that's out there, debt. And states deal with debt. Local government has to deal with debt. National government has to deal with debt. We hear people on and maybe news radio or on television, and they throw out this huge number when they speak of national debt of 16 or 18. I can't even remember what the last number is. However many trillion dollars of debt that trillion is. Trillion with a T. And that number is so big and overwhelming, it's hard to really grasp. You know, it's unfathomable to us to really think of that number. Why is it that debt is a bad thing for government? Well, because, you know, I think you go back to the scripture that the the lender is you know is servant to the or the borrower is lender to our servant to the lender, and so I think when we, we look right now the reason that that we've not taken the stance that our present president has taken is because we owe China so much money, and so I think you take that to a personal level uh, when you owe so much debt you want to be benevolent you want to give to that cause you want to help that person how many times have you heard or you said it yourself i've said it man i'd love to be able to help this person well why can't i because of indebtedness so indebtedness is not just irresponsibility uh, but it's it what it does it handcuffs us from being what god called us to be because the money that we receive the the benefits the blessings that we receive they were not they were not given to us uh, to consume upon ourselves. They were given to us to sustain us, to meet our needs, and then to meet the needs of those around us. And, and I would say, quite frankly, uh, money and influence was given to us by God as leverage to reach somebody. Because listen, if I help you with your car note or help you buy a car, uh, then 
and then I want to be able to get uh, some influence in your life spiritually, I've got some leverage. But if I'm, you know, so I, I think in the most uh, practical sense, uh, it's it, it causes us to not be able to make good decisions. So as a follow-up to that, when, like in, in Jonesboro, we talked about uh, before the podcast, in Jonesboro, we had a vote recently about raising taxes, uh, I think 1%, something that seems small. In your experience, though, when taxes go up, does charitable giving go down? Yes. How so? Because there's only so much money in your pocket, and there's almost so much money in a community. One of the things you'll hear politicians, especially liberal politicians, will say something like this, and, it's, and the follow-up is not is what we do not think about. Uh, President Obama was was really really uh, popular, not popular, but but very apt to say these this line. Everybody needs to pay their fair share. You ever heard that? No. Yeah, okay. hundreds of times. Okay, of course. So, so here's the problem with that. You know, what is that number? Tell me that number. Tell me what my fair share is. No. Where, where's the max? When if I get to this number, is it 48% of my income? Is it 88%? Is it 98%? Mm-hmm. What is my fair share? And you'll never hear that answer because it's, it's always more. And so take Jonesboro or North Little Rock or anybody else, Here's my stance has, has long been, uh, you asked me for a penny sales tax, prove to me you're doing well with what you have, yeah. because that's the biblical principle. Be faithful with what you have, then you can ask for more. Yeah, we don't boycott our boss for a raise to buy the new car. Right. We budget. That's right. Right. Pastor Copeland, let me, let me ask you a, a question here that is, um, I can say this because my dad's a pastor. Uh we would have dinners or special backpack giveaways, you know, back to school, you know, come over here, get your school supplies, come hang out with us during Sunday school time kind of thing. And it always seems like on those giveaway days, there would be quite a bit more people there, you know, because of instead of getting spiritually fed, they're either getting physically fed or, you know, they were getting something tangible. Um, let me ask you something. Is it the government responsibility? Is it the church responsibility? What, whose responsibility is it to give to the needy? I, I think it's the churches. And here's the thing. I, I really believe that the government at some point, you know, this has been going on now for decades, so it's not new. It didn't start with President Obama. It, it didn't start with President Trump it, 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 or Bill Clinton or whomever. It goes way, way, way back to beyond even the New Deal. Uh, but I believe what has happened, as with a lot of things, is I believe the church has abdicated its responsibility. And what happens is when we create vacuums, they get filled. And so I think if the church would have fulfilled its obligation uh, to, to those around them, there wouldn't be a need for that. There wouldn't be a need for, uh, for government assistance. I, I actually have a nonprofit uh, that I've, I've been going for six years. And what I found was that there's all kind of nonprofits to help people who do not work. Well, we created a nonprofit. It's called Arkansas Metro. And what we do, we work with seven churches right now in the local area. None of them are of our faith. Uh, but uh, when somebody walks in their church and say, we need help with our utilities, our rent, et cetera, they send them to us. It has nothing to do with our church. It's totally separate. But what we do, we will work with them, take an application. We uh, 
uh, find out what their need is and find out why they're in this situation. I've had people come in with a $130 utility bill and had a $160 cable bill. And I said, you know what, we'll help you with the utility bill. Uh, you cut off the cable and get you a set of rabbit ears, you know, and uh, if that's your thing. And so, well, I thought we were talking about 21st century, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we just took, uh, you know, 20 years back, but <laughs> step back. But, but so those are the type of things being, you know, I think it's easy to say, well, people need to just take responsibility. People just need to go to work. But if you have people that are three and four generations of dependency on government, it's not going to happen overnight. So you got to be smart. You got to be kind. You got to be, uh, innovative, creative, create some leverage and say, hey, we're going to pay this. In exchange for paying this utility bill, would you meet with us once a week uh, and we're going to help you because uh, most people that we deal with, they feel like 20 hours a, a week is a full-time job. It, it's and, and so we're training them. They know it's not 20 hours a week, it's 40 hours a week. And what about a second job? What about savings? So we, we want to take them from a surviving mentality of getting $600 a month from the government uh, and move them to thriving. With that being said, for, for all the things I hear about, uh, you know, the problems with all the people on welfare and the handouts, the, the biggest money going out is not to a single mother with three kids. The biggest money going out is to GM, uh, uh, subsidies to oil companies. Bailouts. And, and that's welfare too. But instead of being $600 a month, that's $600 million a month. And so I think as a government, we've got to look at uh, both of those. And I would look at the corporate first and then move down to the lower hanging fruit. Brother Copeland, I have to ask you this in response to that answer then. Why do you, why do you love the people that, can't, that won't, let you, won't love you back? Why do you love those people? Because, I, because God did me. Because he, he loved me when I was unlovable. He, he, he saw something in me that no one else saw. Uh, I had a man that picked me out. He was actually a new convert, came to the church, and he saw me and he saw potential in me. I got to church late after it started, and I left before it was over. And the only reason I came was so my mother wouldn't harass me, you know, in between Sunday and Wednesday. And uh, he saw something in me. He started having me drive his bus. He would literally come to my house and pick me up so I could drive his bus. And he worked with me and taught me that there was, that there was something in me that, uh, and he, he actually taught me to be a soul winner. And I'll tell you guys, I'd 10 times rather teach a Bible study than preach a sermon. Uh, I, I, I love, I love teaching Bible studies. I love working with people one-on-one. And to me, preaching in front of 200 people, that's gravy. Uh, but you know, I had, I had four people there Sunday. Uh, when I ran for lieutenant governor, one of the ladies that uh, interviewed me, I taught a Bible study. She got the Holy Ghost, and she let you in today. Uh, hmm. And so that made that run for lieutenant governor worth it. Uh, and, and the Lord told me, I, I told the Lord when I ran, I needed $10,000 just to start for the filing fee. And I said, Lord, if you want me to run for lieutenant governor, because uh, I felt like he was calling me to do it. And I looked back later, and the reason he had me do it, I believe, was to meet Robin and to see her filled with the Holy Ghost, baptized in Jesus' name. And another man heard me on the radio, and uh, he's an elder right now at another church, but he called me after that interview and said, something told me to, to uh, call you. He met me in my office. I taught him, taught him a Bible study that day, 
and I baptized him after that Bible study. He got the Holy Ghost in the water. And then he's at his church, and that's between him and God. Uh, and, but I didn't ask him to change churches, you know. Uh, I taught him truth and, and uh, shared it with him, so... Pastor, you are talking about how you poured into somebody's life after um, you were given the av- availability to run for lieutenant governor. Um, who's somebody that really poured their life into you and really set you on your way to ha- to where you're at today? John Varner. He, he's passed away now, but John Varner was a uh, accountant for Shell Oil, uh, he was in Afghanistan, Afghanistan with the Peace Corps. He left his job, walked away from a $100,000 a year job in 1970. So that was a lot of money now, but it was a whole lot of money then. Went to uh, into the Peace Corps, came back to Louisiana, and uh, was searching for God. He walked in the Pentecost of the Twin Cities on a Sunday morning, got the Holy Ghost. Six or eight months later, he spots me in church, been in church since I was five years of age, and uh, and took me under his wing and taught me what being a soul winner was. Taught me how to pray every day. Taught me to be in the Word. Uh, taught me. Taught. I taught my first Bible study and literally, guys, I didn't know Paul from Peter. And I was 21 years of age. I knew all the Bible stories, but I didn't know the Bible. And he taught me the Bible. He taught me uh, and taught me how to be a, a soul winner and not just to come to church and sit on the pew, uh, but to influence people and. He's by far uh, the other guy's Leon Head. When I was five years of age, my mother had my brother when she was sixteen, had me when she was eighteen, and so she didn't even know how to be a mother. And our home was a, it was a mess. And this man knocked on our door one day, and uh, and we went to church, and my mom and dad got the Holy Ghost, and that revolutionized my life. And so I. I I uh, I preached a sermon one time that Leon Head is my hero. You know, he was the guy that knocked on our door, and John Varner's the other one. Praise God. Um, back into kind of the political realm. There's a big word that's been thrown around in this election season we're coming into about socialism. Donald Trump has been very clear that America will never be a socialist country. There has been a religious theology that has kind of sprung up primarily around in Latin America of liberation theology. And with that, it kind of ties into the ideas of socialism. Let me ask you this as a, from a pastoral perspective. Does Christianity prosper more under a socialist-style government or a capitalistic government? You know, really, a, a better way of answering that is just look at every socialist country. And look at Christianity in, in, in socialist countries. Look at economics in socialist countries. And so, you know, if people can just, if, if young people or whomever listens to this, uh, and people in general, you know, quit listening to the rhetoric of me and Bernie Sanders and whomever else, Donald Trump. Look at the, the empirical evidence. Look at Venezuela. Look at... Uh, and, and people will use countries like Sweden and Norway. They'll use those, and what they lose sight of. Well, there is no government control of production, means right. of production at the, in those countries. Absolutely. And a lot of people will attack capitalism because they don't even know what real capitalism, capitalism is because a lot of times we don't see capitalism in, in America. 
what we see a lot of times is crony capitalism. And so that's where the government will give a defense contractor undue influence or undue advantage or bailouts for auto, automobile companies. That's not capitalism. That's, that's crony capitalism. Capitalism. So it's, it's very important that we first, but I think that's the problem in, in schools today. Uh, people are not taught the difference between true capitalism and crony capitalism. So right. uh, back to your answer about socialism, uh, there's no doubt that, that in a democracy, a re representative republic, that, uh, you know, and you look throughout the world, uh, there, there is much more religious freedom and, and, uh, and, and God working in great ways because of that. Does it? Do you ever have to grit your teeth when you hear people say that America is a democracy rather than a representative republic? Yes, because you know uh, a democracy basically you would you would get rid of if you wanted a true democracy, get rid of the you know electoral, electoral college, college, right? And then that's what you have New York, L.A. and New York dictating who your next yeah, president. Exactly, is. And I'm you, definitely out you, on that. You only have the coasts that control everything in a democracy because it's just simply majority rule rather than a representative. Exactly. Probably. Brother Copeland, did Jesus teach socialism? Not in the least. In fact, he, he taught quite the opposite. He, uh, you know, and again, when you, you talk about Jesus personally, a lot of times people will read the, the red letters. I, I've heard this till I'm just, you know, almost nauseated. They'll say, well, you know, uh, the woman, they'll use the woman uh, that was caught the act of adultery. And they'll quote that part where he said, Neither do I condemn thee, woman, where thine accusers, I have none. Neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Uh, but they don't. They leave out that last part. Well, a lot of times people will say, you know, if you have a, you know, if someone asks for your, you know, your your staff, give them your staff, give them your cloak too. See, that's that's the scripture. Here's the funny part about this: twofold. One, the, the very very people that are telling you you ought to give your staff and your cloak have three houses and a private plane, uh, and you know, they give less money than anybody, but even more importantly, uh, because that's kind of just a barb, uh, the more importantly is you have Paul writing to Timothy and saying, if you don't work, you don't eat. And so, yes, we're to be benevolent. Yes, we're to be there and to help people, but we're to be there to help them and say, okay, now here's how you can help yourself. And so how can somebody who can't help themselves give their staff and give their cloak if someone doesn't teach them to have a staff and to have a cloak. Right. Yeah. So, yes, I give my staff and I give my cloak and in, you know, 21st century terminology, yeah, I give, you know, some of my money, I give some of my uh, wealth to other people, but in turn, I teach and mentor them to do the same for somebody else down the road. Does it help the local church for the government, whether it be federal or at a local level, to be pro-business? Mm. I, I don't think so. I, I don't, as far as helping the church, you, is it, was that your question? Well, I, where I'm kind of basing that is from the, uh, let's say, minimum wage. Okay. So minimum wage comes into a city. Does it help the local church or does it hurt the local church because of the, business, the, the side effect on the businesses? Well, I, I think business can be a blessing to the local church and has been. You know, you look at a lot of things we do. Uh, we were talking here just a moment ago, and I know you guys are not church, but you're doing great work, and you got people that are wanting to support you and help you. Well, your experience has been my experience. The the people, hardworking people out there, uh, 
I don't find them to be greedy. I, I find them to be very responsible. I'm talking about people that own business. Uh, so I, I think it's, you know, I, I think they're a tremendous benefit and blessing. We'll have an event here in October that's a community event. We have an event. We've had it for the last uh, four years. It's kind of a community-wide event. That's all underwritten by business. Uh, so what happens, though, when you have these mandatory minimum wage uh, requirements is business, uh, they, they adjust. And so when I walked in Taco Bell the other day, there's a, there's a kiosk where I order. There was not even anybody there to take the order. Right. The next thing that will happen is they'll have, they'll have a robot making the order. And so uh, if they can't, if, if I want a taco for a dollar, you know, you can't pay somebody to make a taco for 15 bucks an hour and then ask somebody else to weld the parts onto a bridge for $15 an hour. Yeah. Those two things are not paralleled whatsoever. And so uh, I, I think, you know, I think it's very, very important that, we, again, those are things that are not taught in school because they're taught from an ideology, not from a practical standpoint. So our kids are just given these well, you know, these mean corporations won't pay somebody $15 an hour. It's it's not that I like that, man. That's a pretty <laughs> so, good motorcycle. Yeah, this is going quick. Tony's out of here, man. He's gone. <laughs> <laughs> it's that motorcycle that was parked behind the church anyway. So, exactly. So uh, so I, th I think it's, you know, I, I want the young men and young women in our church to be able to, and, and, and the people listening, to have opportunities these and like we did, you know, working in the grocery store or whatever. Entry-level. Uh, Entry-level positions. Uh, my goodness, my dad probably, and again, probably took him years to make $15 an hour. But because you think that's a good round number, not to mention, uh, you know, you got all these cities that pass these city ordinances for minimum wage, and they're having negative results as a, res uh, as a result of it because it's economics. You can't pay somebody that's not worth $15 an hour or the business they're in. You can't pay them that and it'd be sustainable. It's not that you don't want to, it's just not sustainable. Does it just move the goalpost of how much, uh, so living, let's say if somebody's saying, well, I, I'm trying to, I'm barely scraping by making $8 an hour or whatever it has been. Whenever it adjusts to $15 an hour, doesn't just everything they're paying for get more expensive? Inflation, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just simply economics that, if I'm selling widgets for a dollar uh, and you make me pay the guy putting the widgets together, you know, 40% more than the widget's going to cost a dollar fifty, I'm not going to just pay him more money. I can't because otherwise I don't, I don't want to be in business for the fun of it. I want to be in business to make money. And so if you make me pay him extra money, then I just pass that on to you. I, I was in a meeting with the Republicans one time. They were saying, you know, well, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to raise the taxes on diesel fuel. And they did that. And I was fighting against it. They said, well, it's going to be a wholesale tax. It's not going to be on the consumer. And I was like, well, Einstein, who you think is going to pay the additional uh, money? The, the, the wholesaler is not going to, you know, not pass that on to the consumer. Mm -hmm. And so that's just people that don't have a basic understanding of economics. Yeah. And they would probably say that, well, the business is just being greedy. Because there's an argument out there that says, well, capitalism is greedy, uh, but, or, well, what is it? No, no, it's selfish. I'm sorry. They would, they would accuse capitalism being selfish, but socialism being very greedy. What are, you, what are your thoughts about these, these spiritual kind of attitudes behind these subjects? Uh, is it true that capitalism 
is a kind of greedy and socialism being selfish, or how does you how do you think that works? Well, uh, I think basically, uh, if you look at economic systems, whether they're capitalism or socialism, uh, I, I think they're less spiritual in nature, and they're more just practicalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's be honest that capitalism is based on gain, and if you want to call that greed, uh, but aren't we, you know? I tell you how greedy I am is I hope I get a paycheck at the end of the week, you know, yeah, yeah. and would I love to be able to give my whole paycheck? And this kind of goes back to the debt thing. If I can get less debt, then I can take less money. And uh, if the company that I'm a part of or the church or whatever, and they have to pay me less, uh, you know, or get to pay me less, th- that's a benefit to them. Uh, but so these economic systems, whether it's socialism or capitalism, I think are based on, more practicality, just like Jesus, you know, and and uh, Matthew were sitting there, or Peter were talking about the tax money, uh, and this was actually a temple tax, and and Jesus didn't say no. He he made the case that you know we're of another world. We're not. We're here temporarily. We're the children of God, but nevertheless, we're going to pay it. And so Jesus was able to separate the practical from the from the spiritual, and they went fishing and paid the money so to our crucial conversation family i want you to go ahead and buckle your seat belts right here because we're going to talk about some stuff we're not supposed to talk about we're going to talk about some morals pastor and who better to talk to this than you um i want to ask you this question it's a very deep question and i'm gonna i'm gonna follow this question with what i did um should christians keep morality out of the voting booth Let me stop you right here before you start and tell you why this question I want to hear the answer to. We were talking about in your office before we got on record about um, politics. And you, I'm just going to throw you out there, you did not vote for Donald Trump in the the primary. I actually did vote for him. I just wasn't for him at the beginning. Okay, okay, all right. But I did did. vote for him. Brian? In the primary? Right. Brian, did you vote for him in the primary? No. Okay, so let me explain myself. I did as well. Um, it's for me, I'm not on the level of politics as you and Brian, Brian, this is, this is Brian, something he's been looking forward to for quite a while is he loves politics, but I voted for him because number one, he wasn't a politician. And, um, I like that about him to be just, Mm -hmm. to be completely open and honest about it. Um, and I have always been a Republican. The D word in my growing up house was Democrat, not something else and we just I was never raised that way and but I voted for Donald Trump and I've actually had people that I've worked with that if I knew that I, I voted for Donald Trump they said how could you be a Christian and vote for Donald Trump because of his morals I tried to talk Tony out of it Brian did try to talk <laughs> me out of it and I, I just wasn't having it but but go ahead and, and and share with me should we keep morals out of the voting booth you know I think that is a that is a great Great question, uh, and I've heard that a lot. In fact, what's really, uh, to me, ironic about that question is used a lot by establishment Republicans to berate Christians who vote for Donald Trump. Uh, and I would contend, one, uh, he that's without sin cast the first stone. So which politician uh, is, is morally superior to the other one? Uh, Because I think moral politician, 
uh, even though I am one, maybe a paradox in and of itself. <laughs> Brian, we should have okay. Facebook Live. He, he might be telling on himself. Because <laughs> we're we're doing this podcast, and as he's answering this question, he's smiling <laughs> from 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 ear to ear. But what what is the importance though of keeping morality in your heart, even though you didn't vote for it in the booth? Well, that's. Typically, those are one and the same. I think the difference is, um, I, I think of like voting for president, and I'm thinking back, you asked me the question about who I vote for. I supported uh, Ted Cruz heavily. We actually had him here uh, on our church campus. And just to and, clarify, that's who I voted for in the primaries. For so anybody I, who's thinking that I'm some anti-Trump, anti-Republican, you're wearing I, Trump socks I, right I, now. That I was, yeah, I'm, I'm, I have voted for him. I voted for him in the general. I'm wearing his face on my socks right now. <laughs> but, but in the primaries, I voted on the record, not the personality. Right, right. And I, I just like Ted Cruz. I liked his moral stance and and those things at the same time. Um, but as it moved along, when I saw that Republicans, Democrats, uh, and the media were dead set against Donald Trump, and then Donald Trump were talking, was talking about things that uh, were what I would call morally neutral. They were the wall or whatever, and, and I know we're going to get to that. Some people would look at that as a, a moral issue, and I, I think we can have that discussion. But look, there's certain things that morality in and of itself you know, in this world doesn't uh, play a part in. And, and let me let me explain that. Uh, you know, I don't ask uh, who prescribed my glasses or my doctor, you know, and I think that's fairly important, your general practitioner, your brain surgeon, or are you a Christian? You know, can, can, I, can I find, you know, are you, are you married to the original woman that you started out with? Oh, you can't do brain surgery on me. So I, I think... You know, there's a lot of things that we we choose. Well, this person does the job; they can get it done. Uh, and morality, in that sense, has nothing to do with it. I'm ready to link this with the church, if you don't mind, for a second. Many times we call Donald Trump, our president, unqualified, and there is times in our walk with God we feel unqualified. And people will look at you and say, I know you're pastor. You're, you, you should not, you don't belong in the pulpit. Uh, you don't belong in ministry. You don't even belong in the church. You're going to split hell wide open. You know, it's a, let me just say this. Uh, before you let people like that negatively speak into your life, make sure you, you consider the source. Yeah, here's what I always think about. I think about when somebody asks me, and I think it's different when we ask someone to teach our kids or to teach you know, it, within the church, I think there, and the Bible is clear about this, uh, about those that are in spiritual leadership, that there is a, a place of qualification. Uh, so I think that's actually pretty clear. Uh, but when we start judging people uh, that that outside of that, though, those were very narrow parameters, uh, then I think we, we get a, re- a real slippery slope because... There's not one of us here. I'll give you an example. I've known of people that were just death on people who they're, and this is going to, this is not going to, I don't know what this will do, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and say it. Uh, But they're death on people who get pregnant before they get married. And the same people that are 
running their mouth about them getting pregnant before they got married and just having all kind of things to say about it, had sex before marriage, but didn't get caught. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it should it be uh, absolutely, uh, you know, that's fornication. It, but again, it's, it's judgment and uh, it's happened, it's sin, it needs to be taken care of, but that's between them and God. We're to love them, uh, and and I think finding that balance in saying, hey, we're going to stand for godliness, we're going to teach our young people godliness and righteousness, we're going to model it, but when they sin, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do what Jesus did when we sin. We're, we're, he didn't look the other way. He asked us to, for, to, to make it right. Uh, we ask for forgiveness. He brushes us off. He picks us up, but a lot of times we want to be that guy. Somebody told me one time, said, I can tell how uh, your relationship with God by how you treat people who fall short. Because the guy that was, had been forgiven the huge debt went across the street and beat down a guy that owed a little bit of debt. And so I have to always remember I'm the guy that God forgave a bunch. And so uh, I still got to have people in, in, in places and in positions of leadership that qualify scripturally. Uh, but man, I'm going I'm to err on the side of mercy because God's, God's mercy is greater than his judgment. And that, that may sound soft, but people that know me and know the church I pastor, they know better. You talk, uh, when you talk like that, it makes me think of, I heard, again, back to Paul Mooney, I heard him preach one time that the church is like you know a city up on a hill. You've got to build a wall around the city to keep people from falling off the cliffs, but you also had to put ambulances down in the valley so if they should fall off the cliff, there's something to take care of them as it brings them back up into the city. Mm. But going back into the question that Tony brought up that I, I think is is so huge, should Christians keep morality out of the voting booth? And I know we talked about it in terms of uh, voting for Donald Trump, which you know critics would say he's a very immoral man. What are you guys doing? But we've got issues like abortion. Uh, should we keep our morality out of the voting booth when it comes to things like this? Oh, According, like abortion, let me say this, like, I think if we have like a guy like whomever is running and, and someone uh, is for abortion, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to, I don't care if they're Republican or not, I'm not going to vote for them. Uh, so I think in that sense, yes, uh, where it's something uh, that is uh, pretty obvious. Uh, I, I think where it, where it comes to past sins past mistakes, things that people have made. Uh, if, if, if a guy gets up and says, you know, if, if I'm elected president, uh, you know, I'm all for abortion, then yes, by all means, take morality into the voting booth. But if I'm sitting there trying to decide which one I'm going to vote for because I think you may have been imperfect in your past, then uh, I think that's a, that's a far different argument. Okay. So, so we should take morality in whenever it comes to the issues of life. And when it's when it's a policy that will affect life, morality of an individual more so than uh, using a moral standard against an individual. Yeah, I I, I think a better a way for me to say it, and I think you said it great, is uh, that if it's things that would lead us as a nation to an Im more immoral nation, whether it be gay marriage, whether it be uh, abortion. I think we need to we need to stand with the person that 
stands for godly principles. Uh, if it is somebody that people have questions about their personal morality, uh, I think that gets into judging. And, and I don't sure. want to, I don't want to make a choice about a candidate based on their personal morality. Well, what Anthony Mangan says on this uh, subject is something that I, I can appreciate. He, uh, he very much so supports the phrase of um, love the sin or hate the sin. Yes, absolutely. And that's, I think that's very important. Uh, uh, talking about morals, what are your thoughts on keeping a separation of church and state? Well, one, it's it's not even a governmental. It's hmm. not a, it's not a constitutional principle. Uh, the 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 whole premise of that was based on what happened with uh, you know the the church in in uh, in Great Britain, and so the the stance was to keep the government out of the church's business, not to keep. Uh, the church out of the public square. And so that is one of the biggest misnomers uh, that, you know, and a lot of people quite honestly just don't understand it, but that was never the intention of the founders. In fact, uh, I read some one, one place uh, that the majority of, of the founders were, you know, there were several pastors, I think 16 of, of the original framers were, uh, either ministers, presidents of, of Christian colleges. So there, there was a strong, strong foundation there. On the other hand, there was not to be the promotion of one religion because that was the problem with, with again, with Great Britain was the, the promotion of one religion. And so I think we have to uh, push for and, and encourage. The Bible says that righteousness exalted the nation and so it's it's more about righteousness and godliness than it is any particular religion. I think it was President Obama who said that America is not a Christian nation. Is that true? I, I think it's uh, I think a better way of, of, of framing that is I, I think we are a Christian nation as we would think about it. I don't think the founders ever, if you read the, the founding documents, I don't think they ever thought about setting it up as a theocracy, uh, or, or otherwise they would have created some type of of, of pseudo theocracy. Uh, but what I did, I do believe they intended that Christianity. In fact, the founders, if you look in 21st century, they would be rolling over in their graves if they were able, because their biggest concern about a republic was. You cannot have a, a, a functioning republic uh, without morality. And so morality has to be a part of it. Think about it. If you've got people that willfully lie, willfully misrepresent, they can deceive a lot of people. They can get up on the House floor and make accusations just based on total fabrication. And so they realize that for a, for a representative republic to, uh, to uh, thrive, there had to be morality. And so uh, I, I don't think the founders wanted us necessarily to be, you know, uh, you know, a, the, the church, uh, you know, people were made to go to church or made to be godly. But I, I do believe they wanted it to be the fabric of it and the backbone of it to be morality and the, uh, the characteristics of, of Christianity. So whenever we say that we're one nation under God and that um, a lot of folks are trying to pull 
um, God completely out of schools and out of the national anthem and out of the Pledge of Allegiance and, you know, just different forms. They're, they're just trying to do away with all of that. What is the importance of keeping that? I think one, the Bible says that righteousness exalteth the nation. And so I think just having uh, those things as a part of our culture uh, are important for us as, you know, people that are uh, grown. But I think it's very important for our children. Uh, I think to have a, a nation that depends on God, that God is a central part of it. Uh, I think is is very very important. It is a balancing act uh, to say you know uh, we want everybody that is in America. I don't think I don't know of a Christian that wants it to be required that every person in America goes to church uh, because people even God gave people that free will. Uh, but to have allowed that influence because that influence. Anywhere you have that great influence, go to any city in America, the more godly, the more Christian, the more uh, religious, if you will, that that city is, uh, that town, uh, the better off that city is economically, crime, and everything else. So it's 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 pretty clear uh, that it's it's an important part of the social fabric. In what ways would you say that Judeo-Christian values have bettered the world? Well, I, I think with with uh, just the values of Christianity, uh, I believe you get morale, you know, true Christianity. I think you get not just religious, but but true Christianity, and that's Christ likeness. You get fairness. You get uh, uh, honesty. You get concern and benevolence. And so there's just this natural. Uh, progression or natural elevation of the of the community and the society when you have those I, I think you actually you could take uh, any don't even call it Christianity but if you t- took those same morals and you laid them into a community and, and promoted it you possibly could get the same thing the only problem with that is outside of Christianity it doesn't exist yes and so that's the I, to me I think that's the beautiful irony of, of of Christianity yes atheists want to live in a live by the values of Christianity just without the titles of in any kind of religious connotation it seems like you know Tony and I we had a discussion one time on a podcast that we were kind of doing just a solo but it'll probably never make the air but in it we started talking about uh, I asked him, who have been the most historically discriminated against hated class of people that uh, has been in the world. And he didn't know where I was going with it, and he answered politicians. <laughs> but, I did, yeah, absolutely. But, but I said it was the Jewish people, because when you study through, whenever they first came into to the land of Canaan, they were greatly resisted. They established themselves as a nation, and all the nations around waged war against them. Then they were destroyed by the Assyrians in the south, the Babylonians in the north, then they went. They were in, in captivity for seventy years. Went back into the land, reestablished themselves until the Romans took them over, and then the Romans destroyed them in seventy A.D. Dispersed them throughout the world. Then Adolf Hitler 
arises and he begins to exterminate them off the face of the earth after all these years in between where they were blamed for the Black Plague and, and all these different things. And finally, they're back into the land of Israel. And I asked Tony, I said, why do you think it is that the Jewish people have been so hated historically? And I said, and it's not an argument that's original with me. I think I heard Dennis Prager say it before. It's because Israel was created by God to represent a system of morality into its world. Because at that time, all of these heathen nations were sacrificing their children and they were uh, to their, their false gods and bestiality and all these different things that were, were trademarks of those cultures. And through it all, God selects one nation to be his representative to show the world there is a better way. And so I think that that's the reason why historically they have been tried to, by I think the clear work of the enemy, to try and eradicate them from the earth. And I think now that's why we're seeing today here in America, it seems like, Christianity is being removed from the public square is because... The, the spirits that are in control in this world do not want a voice for morality in the public square. Do you agree? Absolutely. I, I think, too, something that would be greatly missed if we didn't parallel, the nation of Israel is a type and shadow of the church in the New Testament. And so I would contend that now the, the, the greatest tragedy that, that is so visceral is the, the, the destruction of the Jewish people by Adolf Hitler and, uh, and, and some of the other, you know, just notorious uh, Mao and, and others. Uh, however, I, I think actually that the greatest, per, the people persecuted the greatest in the history of the world are Christians because you go back to Rome, you know, the Romans, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I believe it started with Jews. If you look at Jews today, they're very secular. They're not uh, overtly... Uh, and, and this may be getting get me in a little trouble, but they're they're actually very liberal in their theology and even in their morality uh, today. But when the time you're talking about, they were the type and shadow of the church, and so it was not so much the Jewish people; it was what they represented that system of value, that system of godliness that they uh, operated in at that time. And then they were a type and shadow of the church to come. And so, uh, and, uh, and here's another thing, guys. I think we look a lot of times, we look at things in a North American context. And we say, well, we're not getting lined up and shot. But look all over the world. The most persecuted people in the world are Christians all over the world being killed every single day. There's Christians right now being killed. Uh, and so uh, you don't see that. You, you don't see a lot of Muslims being killed. Uh, for for their religion is Muslims killing Christians all over the world. And so I, I think literally, if you were to total it up, I think there's been more Christians killed than anybody else. But I think yeah. it definitely was because they were a continuation of those Jewish people that you talked about. Right. Uh, but I, I don't believe even Jews today are being, they're hated over in the Middle East, surrounded by a billion people that hate them. And they're, they're quite the miracle. But the reason they're hated, it's it's much more, uh, it's much deeper than their Israelites and, and Muslims hate them. It is actually because they are, uh, they have the fingerprints of God on them. And mm -hmm. guess what? We as Christians have those same fingerprints. And so that's why we're hated. It's a, it's a system beyond this world that would love to destroy everything that 
uh, has any relation to God. Pastor Copeland, we, first of all, I apologize right up front because we've never had somebody of uh, your background on our podcast, so I feel like we're bombarding you with a lot of issues. No, no, uh, I'm but, loving it. But Brian and I, when we sat down and started thinking of some questions that we were going to ask you, there's a lot of um, topics that's going around right now uh, because we are in the middle of getting ready to see who's going to be our president for the next four years. And there's a whole bunch of different issues going on. And one thing that keeps coming up is uh, guns. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So what was the Second Amendment's purpose? I think if you look at the original framers, it seems to be uh, two twofold. I think one was a well-organized militia. Uh, because of their background, you have to look at the context of you know, their persecution uh, in their motherland. They come here. It's never again. Uh, if the government gets too strong, there needs to be some type of uh, uh, defense system that is not government-controlled. And so uh, they, they wanted there to be a well-organized militia. Uh, but I think much, I, I think that, the, uh, that there's even a greater uh, content, context there or, or a microcosm of that militia is the individual in their home uh, you know, I, I heard of a guy the other day that was being attacked uh, by someone with a gun, and the, the person with the gun, you know, they have no regard for laws. Have no, and, and the person that didn't have the gun was like, you know, I want to be a good person. I don't want to, you know, conduct violence and, and these types of things. But one of the greatest things that we can have, uh, I believe the Second Amendment actually is is the greatest of all the amendments because it guarantees uh, the the continuation of all the other rights, and so I, I think it's very very important uh, that that we have that. Here's the thing: uh, people, the same arguments that are used for guns. Well, if we outlaw guns, then society is going to be safer. Well, how'd that work out with alcohol? You know, how's that working out in Chicago, Illinois? Yeah, how's that working out for drunk drivers? You know, and vehicles. Sure. So I mean, uh, and and yeah, and then you go to these uh, cities. It's kind of like socialism. You know, that Brian brought up earlier. Well, if you want to know how socialism works, uh, go to San Francisco. And 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 I went to San Francisco thirty years ago, and it was I went to the Opera House Cafe and it just. Walk the streets at 11 o'clock at night in San Francisco. The wind's blowing at 65 degrees. I mean, it's like just beautiful, wonderful. That don't went, sound bad at all. Yeah. I went there 15, uh, 15 years after that. Still nice, but had a little edge to it. Went there 10 years after that. Didn't want to get out of my car. Went there three years ago, and I never drove through there and got out of there as fast as I could. I mean, it was just deplorable what it looked like. That's crazy that you say that because my wife and I, about nine years ago, we went for, there on our uh, honeymoon, and I, I wouldn't go back. Mm -mm. But so, so uh, you know, you don't have to wonder what it would be like without guns. Go to Chicago, and and people won't have this conversation. But go to highest Chicago. highest crime rate among guns than anywhere yeah and, and it's outlawed there yeah and the most restrict gun law so it you know so well you got to take them all away you know well tell the people and how's that know, working with drugs or yeah or mexico city 
You know, Mexico yeah. City is one of the has some of the strictest gun laws, and and they're killed in the streets every day. You know, so. there's a Democratic politician that coined this phrase: um, "The biggest threat to America is a white man with a gun." And that, that, it's almost offensive to me. Um, I am a gun owner. I do carry my gun to church. Um, on, I mean, that's my right and my liberty. But Jesus taught his followers to throw away their swords. And, you know, we all know that. Um, in the 21st century, should we throw our guns away? Well, that's a good question. I, I'd like to look at the context of, of throwing the sword away uh, in regards to because I, I want to be very careful to not answer a question politically or my my own idea. But at the same time, I think, you know, I have a responsibility uh, to my family, to myself, uh, to protect, you know, uh, those things that, sure. I, that I, I own and, and, and my family. And so I, I think... Uh, I think we ought to do everything in our power uh, to avoid that, if at all possible. Uh, but at the same time, to, to answer your question directly, uh, I, I don't have an answer. Sure. I wish I did, but I let me Let me tell you, Brian and I had the privilege of sitting down with a um, school shooting survivor who actually looked to her left and saw her one of her best friends have bullet holes in her. And we floored her with a question about gun laws. And she was like, oh, don't ask me that. But she gave us one of the most brilliant answers. Now, mind you, she was a part of a very big crisis, an actual school shooting. Okay? Let that sink in. This is somebody who lived it. At the time, it was the number three worst school shooting in America. Absolutely. It was a non, in non, without counting colleges. And, and, and Pastor Copeland, let me tell you, when we asked her what her, her thoughts on that was, guns are not evil. Evil is evil. Evil is in people. You can, we can pick up that Reese's candy bar and, and hurt somebody with it, you know. And it, it doesn't thrive from the gun itself. It thrives from what's behind the gun and the evilness behind the gun. That's my thoughts on it. Would you Would you agree with that? Well, I, I, here's my thing. I think uh, if you take in uh, take England uh, or in Europe in general, uh, guns are outlawed. You know, policemen don't even carry guns in a lot of those bigger cities. Uh, but people are running over people. People are, you know, knife attacks. And so to your point, I think there is evil. Uh, evil is going to find a way sure. uh, to, to destroy. And so uh, I, I, I think one of the greatest things that we can have is, is to have, one, to have a trust and confidence in God. Uh, and, and then uh, I think physically, you know, we do things all the time to, uh, to defend our, you know, defend our children, or to protect them, whether it be buckle them up, uh, whether it be, you know, uh, not go out on New Year's Eve night because there's going to be drunk drivers everywhere. Uh, so we take these precautions anyway, and uh, and so you know whether it be alarm systems or whatever. And so I think of guns as being another level uh, that that demands a lot of responsibility and accountability. But I think it's something in the world that we live in that is is uh, necessary, unfortunately. Sure. It seems like in our society today, there's no safe place anymore because schools, it seems like once a month there's some kind of school shooting. There have been myriad uh, theater. There was a theater shooting there a few years ago. 
uh, I think it was like in Aurora, uh, Colorado, 2012, something, yeah. something like that. And then you have things that happened at churches, even where uh, not too long ago it was that the guy who entered into that black church. That was one of the oldest churches in the state that it was in, and shot up several members there. So, what is it that we can do, especially whenever we come to a public setting because of of a church? Because the way that a church is set up is everybody is looking in one direction. Mm-hmm. What can the church do to protect itself? Because I know we've been in church services uh, before where a guest walks in and people start getting nervous because, you know, let's talk about the real world. People come to the church and they may be high. They've never been in church before, don't really know how to act. And, and everybody kind of sees them or how they're dressed and everything like that and how they stand out. And people can get really nervous. And so, and I think because of the culture of the fear of well, what if they have a gun? Mm-hmm. And so what can a church do to protect itself while a service is going on? Because like I said, I've listened to Dan Barangino before and, and you know, he was front, was in the secret service and he was talking about how it's very dangerous in the setting of like a concert of a church because there is one point of direction that everyone kind of faces. So what can we do to try and protect ourselves? Yeah, I, I think it's much like fire drills or uh, bad, you know, tornado uh, drills. Uh, I, I think one, we need to train. Secondly, I think we need to have people, we certainly do. We have people that are uh, on watch and, and are armed and uh, we have a, we have a plan uh, for for those situations, I think the other thing is is to move that as far away from the 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 actual congregation, so there that that engagement happens rather than happening in the auditorium itself. It happens in the lobby and even ideally in the parking lot. So I think the farther out, uh, you know, we we have men here uh, that are. Uh, highly trained they're they're ex-military highly trained uh and they actually guard very you know uh influential people in the uh in in the community uh and so they do that for a living and they're they're on staff here to help us so i I just i think that's wisdom you know you know i I i've been thinking as from tony's question you know about you know what is our responsibility and i think a lot of times as as a church we we think of Christians as being weak. We think of them as being, uh, you know, uh, docile. But but listen to what Jesus said. He said to be as wise as a serpent and as harmless as a dove. And so I think it's if we can find that when you're buying a gun, when you're setting up security at a church, you know, it's not like man if somebody makes a wrong move and they're they have evil intent, man, we're gonna you know. But I think it's making sure that we we stop that as soon as possible, and we've made every precaution uh, possible, both in our homes, our businesses, uh, and in the church or any other setting. So I'm kind of glad you brought up the military uh, background in the, the in the sense of men being in your church with military background. Um, we usually don't do this, Brian, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, I've contacted a guest that hasn't confirmed nor denied um, a uh, chance to be on our podcast, and I'll tell you a little bit about him. He is a—I won't mention his name uh, just for the sheer reason he hasn't given me permission, but he is a uh, chaplain that just got back from deployment with the United States Marine Corps, and uh, he just got back stateside, and uh, he's about to retire from the military. 
and um, I ask him to be on our podcast, but I, I think it'd be good to get your input on this too. Um, can a Christian fight in combat? I think so. I think we, we find that in the Old Testament uh, because if, if you look at Israel, Israel was under Roman rule. Uh, so they were not in a, 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 a context where they could protect themselves because they were actually under Roman rule. They were, they were by all, it was probably the most ideal captive sense you could be because they, they were pretty smart in how they did it, but still they were under Roman rule. But if you go back before that, they had guards, they had protection, they had walls around their cities. They conducted themselves. They... All through the Old Testament, they had, uh, you know, these uh, these defense systems, if you will. And so, if you look at where we are as a nation, uh, and and nation building, and and being a nation, a, a nation, a sovereign nation in a world of other nations, it's a different world than biblical times. And you actually have to go back to the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't have a lot of uh, has scriptures and principles, but you don't have a lot of illustrative uh, things that you can copy as a nation that wants to be a godly nation. So if you think about in the, in the realm of history, 200 years is relatively infancy. And so we're, we're as a nation, we're in an infancy, and we're learning how to be a godly nation, follow God's, and that's God's will, God's plan, God's purpose. And I think God's plan and purpose for 12 men or for the church is much different than a nation. And sometimes we, we tend to lay the, God's plan for the church and us as individuals, um, we, we lay that into or over uh, a, a government you know, uh, template. And so as an individual, I can be a, a man of the, the house of God and if I feel like, you know, I can still serve and say, hey, you know, I, I can serve, but I, I don't want to be in combat. I'll, I'll be supportive. I'm a conscientious objector or whatever. Um, and then if you don't feel that way, I, I think the Bible is, uh, I, I think, give some room there for, uh, uh, you know, some leeway, yeah. uh, depending on how a, an individual may feel. But but I think the the... The main thing is, is we have to understand uh, that the uh, this idea of a nation within the church is actually a new concept. It's it's two hundred years old, and that's not very old when it comes to history. Right. Um, when you made a reference back to Israel, you said they had walls, and the two it seems to me the two most controversial subjects right now that are out there that is very highly debated on Facebook and social media, is gun control, as Tony alluded to, and border policies of America. What do you think America's border policy should be? I think it should be exactly what uh, Israel's was in the Old Testament. I think it's, uh, you know, what your policy is at your house. You lock your door. People don't walk in and out of your house. You need to know who's coming in out of your house for the protection of your children, for your family. And so if you look at a nation, what is a nation? It is a reflection or it is a uh, composite of, an, uh, uh, or let me say it another way, your home is a microcosm of the nation. 
And so your house has a fence, it has a door, it has a lock. Uh, and so the, the nation is that microcosm uh, on a large scale. And so it, it's, it's just common sense to, to, to have this, uh, this barrier uh, and to know, you know, the Lord even said about the church, we, you know, we talk about the church, know those that labor among you. And really, that's what immigration is. It's knowing those that are among you. That's, mm-hmm. And the people will use, well, you know, be kind to the stranger. Absolutely. We want to, you know, if people are here, uh, wherever they come from, we want to be loving to them. Listen, we're on our third Hispanic congregation that we've started uh, uh, in my ministry, two here, in, in, and they're thriving, uh, and probably more so than, than anything else we're doing right now. Uh, but... I say that to our Spanish congregation, you know, uh, we want you, we want you here, but get legal, you know, get, get, get done what you need to get done and get it done. So we, we want you to be a part. I don't know of anybody that doesn't want, uh, people in the nation because we all came from somewhere, you know, my family migrated here from Ireland. And so, uh, but there's a difference in immigration and illegal immigration. But again, I think you just go back Make it real simple. The microcosm is your home, and a nation is a, a group or a mass of homes. And we need a fence, and we need a door, and we need a lock on the door, and know who's coming in your house. Yeah, like uh, I'm, I appreciate you bringing up the thing about how, of course, people will throw at the Christians that support a, a border policy and immigration policies. Uh, you know, be kind to the stranger, the alien that resides in your land. Um, which they, they shouldn't repost scriptures like that because they're not allowed to call them aliens anymore. That's offensive. <laughs> but uh, anyway, but they would throw that at us. So obviously, we, uh, I think you, you, I mean, you've just suggested, have you had illegals come to this church? Yes. yes and and so as a, as a pastor, and especially as a conservative that, that has these strong feelings, what, what does the process look like of trying to get them into a legal status? It's, you know, I've worked with attorneys. I've worked with uh, senators. I've worked with congressmen, you know, getting them to, to help them. It, it's it's not any different than when we've sinned and not been what we needed to be. Sure. And we came to the church. Well, the church, you know, it's like going to the hospital, and the hospital is saying, well, you're sick, so, you know, you can't come here. No, that's the place to go. Uh, the same way with the church, but I think that's different than someone coming in saying, you know, I've, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got some terrible situations morally in my life. We will work with them to to work through those, not to condemn them, but to to stop that action and then to help them rebuild their life. Or the same way with someone, we don't say to someone here illegal, well, it's okay, you're already here. Okay, you're here. You, you know, you're. You're, you're breaking the law, so let us help you get right. What do you need to do to get right and uh, to fix this? And so uh, I, I think I, I think that's a, a part the church can play. Again, it's that balance between being merciful and godly and yet at the same time not looking the other way. I want to follow up Brian's question with this. Uh, is it unchristian to support policies that may lead to deportation or restricting people from bettering their life here in America? You know, I, th- I think of that uh, a lot like I do uh, 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 crime and incarceration. Uh, here's something I've found about me is 
the, the farther I, way, I am away from people who are in the middle of a trial or are going to prison, the tougher I am. The closer I am to the situation, the more compassionate and loving I am. And I found myself that same way with immigration. And I've had to actually, because I've taken some very strong stances uh, on illegal immigration and saying, you know, it's wrong. And I believe that with 100%. I'm 100% behind uh, uh, President Trump and, and what he's trying to do. In, in fact, it would probably be even tougher than he is on, in some regards. But at the same time, when I have a, a couple sitting across from me and the man is illegal and he's facing deportation, uh, you know, it's easy to stand up and say, yeah, they ought to deport him, but I'm looking at his wife and his two kids. But I also have to look at the, the reality of, of the law and say, okay, you, you know, and call him by name, and I've had to do that and say, you've got to go to this attorney and you've got to turn yourself in. You've got to do what you've got to do. But listen, here's the good news. We've got a government that will bend over backwards and do everything in their power uh, to, to help you get legal and get right. This idea that the minute you go to ICE or you go to immigration and you try to do the right thing, they're going to put you on a, you know, a train or they're going to put you on a, you know, a, a, a donkey in a wagon and, and pull you back to South America is so erroneous. We'll do everything in our power. Uh, have a lady... That's that I've, I got a screenshot from her yesterday from the Philippines, and she was so proud. Uh, she's showing me her naturalization ceremony, and uh, th that she's so proud to be to become an American. And that's what we want to promote. We want to promote uh, legal the uh, right way, the the right way sure. to come. And so, if you're here and you've done wrong, just make it right. You know, and and you've got a nation that won't that won't pile on, they'll help you, you know. So uh, I don't think people have anything to fear. We will actually be wrapping up here pretty quickly, but there's there's one more talking point we want to get to, and you just brought him up, and that's President Donald Trump. We've talked about him a little bit um, during this podcast, but I want to dig just a little deeper on our current president. Um, what is the moral argument for a Christian to vote for Donald Trump, or is it unchristian? Again, I think if Donald Trump was, uh, here, here's the funny part, is uh, Ronald Reagan had the same marital problems as Donald Trump, but Ronald Reagan was a lot nicer. He was a lot smoother. You know, he was a lot uh, more likable, if you will. Uh, and I'm going to say something that probably would just send some of your listeners over the edge. Give it to me. Uh, I think Donald Trump is the best president we've ever had in my lifetime. You know, my dad says the exact same thing. And, and, and that includes Ronald Reagan, who you saw in my office. I've got Ronald Reagan, Abraham Lincoln, and Calvin Coolidge. Are you going to add Donald Trump's picture to that? I don't know. I'm not sure. I, you know, I don't <laughs> want anybody throwing any uh, rocks at my <laughs> nice cabinet. But, but I really do. And here's why. Because one, and this is a lesson I learned in politics, I told you guys off the air the same thing. Is one of the greatest lessons I learned in politics is this idea of Republicans against Democrats is is theater. It's it's kabuki theater. It is not real. And and you can you American stays so frustrated. In fact, that's why Donald Trump got elected is because they saw uh, time and time again 
conservatives, and I'm using air quotes here if you can't see it, uh, they people standing, running conservative and then not doing it. And then whether it be on immigration, whether it be on debt, whatever it may be, they didn't address it. And on most issues, Ronald, uh, Donald Trump has addressed a lot of those issues. A lot of them he hasn't, uh, and I would like for him to. Uh, but uh, it's, it's Republicans and Democrats and lobbyists, uh, the corporate lobbyists that are lobbying for money and favors uh, for government to, uh, to, to slant uh, laws for corporate interests. It's those against, you know, look at wages. Wages hadn't grown in this country in 35 years, and now they're growing. Why? Because you got a president that will stand up to China that will, you know, look at the, the trade issues between Canada and, and Mexico. Uh, and so uh, his past, what he's done in his past, if, if he got up tomorrow and said, you know, I think abortion's okay, I think I'm, I'm going to change my stance on abortion, I couldn't vote for it. Uh, but what he's done in his life, morale, I don't know where he is spiritually. I have no idea. I don't know anybody uh, that that I know that knows that answer. I know God knows, but all I can go on and what I'm going to go in that voting booth and vote based on is what he does for this country. And I don't know of anybody, including Ronald Reagan, that's done more for this country uh, in the short amount of time that he's been president. Yeah, and... and you know, and we we were faced with a situation in 2016, in my opinion, where with me, because I was not a big supporter during the primaries, but we were, had a vacancy in the Supreme Court. That's something that lasts beyond a president. And, and I think that he, he supported in, in uh, Neil Gorsuch, a, a good uh, Supreme Court justice to replace Antonin Scalia. And that was one of the lasting legacies of, of Ronald Reagan. Um, but I think it's funny when you talk about how it is political theater. And one good way to me, it seems like, is an example. I remember whenever Bill, uh, not Bill Clinton, uh, I was I was too young to really remember much of his presidency. But whenever George W. Bush was president, I remember the hate and vitriol they had against George W. Bush. There was a Comedy Central show cartoon that made fun of him. Uh, everyone constantly insulted him for being uh, idiotic. He, he was always slandered and made out to be this evil character. In fact, the uh, president at the time of Venezuela uh, spoke about when he spoke behind the same platform as George W. Bush that he could smell the sulfur that was there making him out to be Satan. And yet today, in 2019, they look very fondly on the George W. Bush years, and they miss George W. Bush. And now you see memes out there that have his picture that say, you miss me yet. And so where before he was the worst thing that could ever have happened, that he was the what they would call the Adolf Hitler, where they make the comparison to Trump now, all it is is it's just the show. Yeah. All, all it really is is the show is that and in, in 30 years, I think the general public will look back on Donald Trump and see him way more fondly than, than they see him today because uh, it's kind of like one of those things that uh, uh, absence makes the heart grow fonder, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... He he has put some good things in motion. We've we've already talked about, but what was the significance of him putting the U.S. embassy back in Jerusalem? Well, and again, th that right there. Uh, thank you for mentioning that because Ronald Reagan promised to do it, he didn't do it. H.W. Bush promised to do it, and he didn't do it. Didn't Bill Clinton promise that as well? Bill Clinton promised to do it, he didn't do it. Uh, w. promised to do it, he didn't do it. I think Obama even. Uh, 
early on talked about it uh, and didn't do it to get those uh, Jewish votes. Uh, Donald Trump did it. I think that probably ties up uh, and, and encapsulates his presidency is what he says he's going to do. And here's why. Uh, he is not, because most politicians, there's the establishment, there's the in crowd. It's like high school. And I, I experienced that in the legislature. I always felt like a outcast in the legislature because whatever it was, that if it wasn't conservative, it wasn't what I told the people that I that voted for me, that it wasn't what I told them I was going to do, I refused. I don't care who said it, the governor. Uh, many times I said, well, the governor really wants this. And I said, the governor didn't elect me. You know, people in my district elected me. So I found myself on the wrong side of my own party many, many times because it, uh, but yet they were on the same side of the lobbyists and the Democrats. And so that's why I say it's th that whole Democrat versus Republican thing uh, is kabuki theater, man. It, it's all an illusion. That's such a good word, kabuki. I, I love like saying it. that. Anyway, <laughs> can I give you a uh, what I think is uh, it's a it's a encouragement for your listeners? No, bring it. But it's wrapped in a political illustration. Yes, please. Okay, I want you to think back with me to February of. I want to say it was 2016. Okay. February 2016. Uh, and if you, if you could pull it up there, you might have it. The day that Anthony, uh, Anthony Scalia died. Uh, can you pull up while we're talking here real quick? The day he died. I think it was February. I was actually running for the Senate. I was walking, knocking doors, and the, uh, the, the, the news broke and said that he had been found dead uh, in a... Uh, February the 13th of 2016. Okay, February 13th of 2016. The moment that came across the, the wire or came across the radio, here was my thinking. Okay, the most conservative, most reliable conservative Supreme Court justice I've ever known is gone. All right? It looked all but inevitable that Hillary Clinton would be the next president. If you go back to February 13th, 2016, there was not even a hint that Donald Trump, he was a buffoon. You, you know, you've seen the YouTube. All the jokes. Yeah. yeah. You look at all the YouTube, you know. Yeah. Uh, I love watching threads. the, the I love watching the uh, election Trump night coverage where they start I, off making fun of it and then as the night goes, they're like, oh, wait a minute. This I, is... I've watched that like 30 times. Oh, you know? I love it. Or, or he'll never be president. He'll never be president. George Clooney laughing at it. Yeah. yeah. So so that's oh, the context word. of February 13th, 2016. Okay? Fast forward to November the, was it the 4th, 2018, when he was... Somewhere tw in there. Uh, yeah. Of 2016 when he was elected, right? Uh, I think it was the 4th uh, was the night he was elected. Look at how things changed. Neil Gorsuch was was put on the Supreme Court. Then after him, uh, and he slips, it slips my mind, the next Supreme Court. John judge. Kavanaugh. Uh, yes, Justice Kavanaugh. So look at what happened in a matter of months. And what I want to tell your listeners is when you feel hopeless, when you feel like that, you know, it's inevitable that, that nothing can happen positive in your life, that nothing positive can possibly come out of what's going on in your life, you go back to how you felt on February 13th, how I felt on February 13th, 2016, and you look today. 
And that's how I have a saying, and our church has adopted it. My pastor, it was not original with me, and he says this, miracles happen on ordinary days. And always remember that, that no matter how bad things look, that miracles happen on ordinary days. Well, 2016 was a great year for me. I mean... Brian, oh my word. Brian Brian said, "Bro, can you imagine the Chicago Cubs win the World Series?" Right. I have a grandson named Cub, by the way. Do you? Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm a huge Cubs fan. Well, the Cubs win the World Series, Donald Trump gets president, and I find out that we're having a little girl. There you go, perfect, man. Perfect year to me. <laughs> but you kind of get back on track here for a second. Uh I got I got just one more question. Brian may have some more. I'm not sure, but no, I'm, I'm watching the clock. I know he has prayer meeting right now, and I'm parked in the handicap parking spot. I don't want them to tow me out of here. My, my, my last question, we always end with two segments of uh, what you're reading right now, what you would suggest, and a final thought that we might have missed. Um, but one question I want to ask you is a big one. How do we truly make America great again? I think, number one, as individuals, uh, being the very the most godly person that we can be, uh, number one. Uh, prayer, fasting, the Word, it starts so simple. It's like making a great church. You know, a lot of times we want the church to be great. Well, guess what? I am as an individual. Before I'm a preacher, I'm a Christian. And so take care of business at home first. Mm-hmm. And that's my backyard. That's me, number one. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. So get my life right. Get to be... Uh, Give like, you know, love and live and influence. And then I think once we get that right in our own personal lives, then, you know, don't complain about what's going on with the nation. Vote. Uh, give. Give. One of the things we don't do, give to people you like. Give them a dollar. If 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 the 6,000 people, I need a dollar from each of you right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, if the 6,000 people that will listen to this, if those 6,000 gave to one candidate in a in, that they really think could make a difference in their community uh wow what an impact and so if, if you know esther felt like hey i've got to do something and she took a chance she did something and so i, I would encourage people find out is it running for office is it just supporting somebody is it uh giving wherever their gifting wherever their ability is but don't sit on the sidelines and complain. Be godly, be a, a, a Christian, and then become involved. That doesn't mean going to 100 meetings, but be involved where you're most comfortable and where you feel like you can best contribute. Pastor Copeland, thank you so much for sitting down with Brian and I. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I know Brian has. This is right up his alley. Um, give us something you're reading right now, something forward-thinking, something positive we can build on. Yeah, I, I love reading. Uh, I, I read a lot of business stuff, uh, but uh, I, one of the things that uh, I read is uh, I, I love Malcolm Gladwell, and I read a lot of his stuff. And so uh, that's that's something I've, I've read two or three of his books. I'm rereading them right now. His book on David and Goliath, uh, it's 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 just uh, unbelievable. Outliers is another one. Those are older books, but I really and then Team Arrivals. Uh, is another book that I've been going back through. And i tell you a, a hidden gem of a book, if you can find it. It is the story of Robert Shuler that was written by his son-in-law. And it's called, um, I believe it's called Slaying the Giants. 
Uh, but uh, whether you're a minister, whether you're just a business person or just someone punching a clock, uh, wherever you find yourself in life, uh, to, to be able to read that and be encouraged that against all odds you can do great things, uh, I, I would really encourage that book as well. We want to give you an opportunity to uh, speak your heart to somebody, uh, whether it be something that you want to make a, a comment about something we've talked about, double down on something, go more in depth on something, or if you just feel led in this moment to minister somebody that's out there that they've been listening to the conversation, not really expecting to be ministered to out of it, but try and just educate themselves, kind of hear a Christian's perspective on things that have stumbled into this and, and like I said, we just want to give you the floor to just talk about whatever you want to talk about. Oh, well, thank you so much. I, uh, I'll give you a word that I, I gave to my youngest son, who uh, is actually a drummer for Knox Hamilton, a band, uh, and him and his brother started the band, and, and they have a third uh, friend that's in it. They've been very successful, uh, and he, he did his own solo uh, project, and it actually came out yesterday, and uh, he's a super, super shy uh, kid. And uh, I say kid, he's 30 years old, but he's uh, super shy. And he, you know, I was watching the music video, I was listening to the song, and it's, it's really, it's, it's, you know, he did a really good job. And, uh, and, and I thought about how uncomfortable, because I know him, how uncomfortable that must have been for him to get out of his comfort zone. I thought about when I ran for office the first time, I'd get up to talk to a group and I would feel so foolish. And I, I remember thinking, uh, what are you doing? You know, uh, I was driving to the Capitol to, to put my, uh, to, to pay my filing fee. And uh, the night before, uh, I had $9,500. And I said, God, if you want me to do this, you know, I don't have $500 to put toward this. And a guy calls me like at midnight and said, man, I just felt like I need to give you some money. He gave me $500. And, but that was just the beginning and how foolish I felt and how so many times I wanted to quit. People said, man, this other guy started a year and a half ago. You don't, have, you don't stand a chance. And, and he did win, but it was very, very close. And, um, and I remembered how foolish and how just out of my comfort zone I was. But I remember how I grew out of that experience. And I met Robin, taught her a Bible study. She got the Holy Ghost, and she ended up being our church administrator. And she has just been such a, a powerhouse for this church. And that would have never happened if I would not have gotten out of my comfort zone. So I want to encourage your listeners that whether it's a book that's inside of you, it's a song you're writing, whatever it may be, uh, you're gonna, if you feel foolish, if you feel very uncomfortable, if you feel like, man, I'm, I'm a duck out of water, so to speak, uh, that means you're on the right path. And just, just keep moving that way. I, I, I would contend that when you guys first started this, you're like, man, what are we doing, you know? And and people could even look at you, and I had people look at me, you know, both within the church and outside of the church and say, who do you think you are, you know, that you would try to do this? And, you know, what do you think you're doing? And uh, always remember uh, when you're trying to do something uh, and God's calling you to the next level uh, to do something else with your life, and it may not be something big and grand, and it just may be something in your little world that when you feel uncomfortable, when you feel awkward, that means you're growing. That you know, that means you're you're going to the next level. And so, don't let those things. Uh, actually, those are very natural. A lot of people will never feel those feelings. And guess what? You're gonna sit on the you're gonna sit on the nursing home porch and go. You know what? I failed big time, but I tried it. And they're gonna sit on the porch and go. 
I don't know what that feels like. And I'm going to tell you, I'd rather sit on the porch and say, I failed, yeah, I got beat, yeah, I tried it, but uh, I got a story to tell. I would rather live a life full of failure than regrets. Absolutely. I'll tell you this very quickly. One of the most the life-changing things for me, I went to pray for a man in the nursing home one day. I walk in, and nursing homes are not my favorite place anyway. I find myself in them more than you know I'd like. And I go in to pray for this guy, and there's people all around me. The hallways are real crowded with people in wheelchairs, and they're kind of squawking, and a couple of them are sounding like birds, and they're pulling on you. And, and I walk in there, and I pray for this guy, and I leave, and you know I smiled to people and shook hands with them and got out to my car and just felt this crushing, crushing feeling. And I, I couldn't explain it. you know. And I thought, well, it's just seeing so many people in, in these desperate situations and just the sadness of it. So I just felt compelled to go back to my office at the church, and I walked over to the sanctuary, and I just knelt down at the altar. And I, uh, and I asked God, I said, God, I said, what was that I was feeling? And he said it was regret. It was all the, all the regret in that room, in that building. And it was that day that I purposed in my heart, whether it was with my children. I quit playing golf right then. I had three little boys. They were one, two, and three. Uh, I quit playing golf. I quit, I quit doing a lot of things, you know, running the roads and whatever else I was doing. Uh, you know, not, nothing bad, but just bad priorities. And at that point, uh, as a young man, I purposed in my life that I was going to do my best to not live with any regret. And so I, I want to encourage your readers, you know, or your listeners, if, man, if, if you think you want to do something, if you think you want to try something, uh, you said it, Tony, I'd a lot rather live with failure than live with regret because I don't ever want to feel that feeling again. I think I've heard Dave Ramsey say before in terms of finances, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. There are things in life that we all feel like, hey, I really want to just get out there and do something. I want to make a difference. I want to, I want to leave a lasting impact. When, when at the time of this recording, about two months ago, whenever Tony and I started this podcast, we had no idea we would still be going. We thought that it would just be something fun that we would do for a little bit and it would fizzle out. But because we just took a risk, not knowing how to set a th- any of the equipment up, and we've heard all kinds of different constructive criticism, negative criticism. We've had, we've been laughed in our face about doing this. We've, we've had it all. But you know where we're at today, and of course, by the time you're listening to this podcast, we don't even know where we've been to. The way that it's just been, and all credit is due unto our listeners for the growth that we've had. It all started because we just started. We just got out there. And so when is the best time for you to decide, yes, I'm going to go out there and make a difference? It was 20 years ago, but the end of that quote that he talks about in finances is, but the second best time is today. And while you have this moment, I encourage you, along with Pastor Copeland and Tony, to start today. You've been listening to The Crucial Conversation.